So I was going to start off with a very wise gag. <clears throat> so I think There's no better way to begin, really, is there? This is Kino Kingdom, either 11 or 12, I forget. And um, we're now hosted on Podbean as well, so that means that you can uh, you can sort of watch watch the still images of this on YouTube. Or um, if you go to, I think it's themenwhotalk.podbean.com, you can sort of stream it correct. when you're running away from zombies. Or if you're in Apocalypse Z, you can stream it and listen to it on headphones as you're running around an industrial estate near some zombies. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I have got to, to go through today the DS Apocalypse Z, which I watched with Rupert, and there's a lot. There's a lot to say about that film. Um, I watched The Call with Halle Berry, Cold Skin with uh, an almost unrecognisable Ray Stevenson, The Fanatic uh, with John Travolta, directed by Fred Durst, Triple Threat. Uh, which is a film with, I had to watch a Scott Atkins film because it's been far too long since I gazed into that man's eyes, gazed deep into his jaw. So that's got like um, uh, Scott Atkins in and Tony Jaa and a few other key people. Um, then it was The Wolf Hour with Naomi Watts. And I, this is more of an overview because I came into this about halfway through the film. And I'm, I'm just going to say the title of the film and just say if you've heard about it. So it's called In Fabric. I have heard of it, about it, and I do intend to watch it, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it would be a totally spoiler-free like overview, because I, I don't feel like I saw enough of the film to sort of judge it. But oh, right, okay. It's I Pete Strickland, enough. isn't it? The one he did, yes. Barbarian Sound Studio. One of my yeah. favourite films. Um, so, what have you got on the, on the menu then, Rupert? Well, I've got, like you, I have Apocalypse Z. Um, I have... On your recommendation, I watched Behind the Mask, The Legend of Leslie Vernon. Oh, nice. Uh, the Departed, Dirty Dancing, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, <laughs> Ten to Midnight. Oh, is that the, the Charles Bronson film? Or is it that is. David Soul? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, K9. The James Belushi film. Yes. Ghost I'd like Rider. To, again, you, you can watch whatever films you want when we do this podcast. You don't have to stuff it. You can watch anything. <laughs> I know, it sounds like I'm just going through the normal presenters still, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> Ghost Rider and American Psycho 2. Oh my goodness. Yeah, this is one that's uh, it's quite exciting. So before we do start off with um, with the one Apocalypse Z or Apocalypse Z, the one we first watched, um, uh, I don't like doing this, but we've got a sponsorship to get out of the way. Um, so I'm just going to sort of just, go through just, sort of... You just um, sold our soul to the devil. But, you know, know we've got to do it to stay alive, haven't we? This is the thing, you know, money doesn't make itself. Um, my my grandfather used to say, Brit, money doesn't grow on trees. It's it's printed. It's printed in a mint. And then it's sort of distributed around the country. And I said, mm. oh, okay. So I think you just you could have just said it doesn't grow in trees, really. I would have got the gist. Yeah. But um, extrapolated from that, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this one, we're actually sponsored this this podcast by Steven Seagal this week. So oh, he, did send me, like, he did send me an audio file, which I was just going to play. But mm. it, it sounded like he kept falling asleep. So I just thought it would just be easier if I just read it out. So I'll get, I'll get no that. Doubt. Again, I'll no get doubt it. He, was in his, he was in his office in Romania. So, you know, that makes sense. Well, so what I'll do is I'll just, like I say, go through the uh, go through this, read it out, and then we can, you know, get into the get the corporate nonsense out of the way straight into the meat of the podcast. Yeah. 
Hi, I'm Steven Seagal. You'll know me from the films I've been in, such as Hard to Kill, Out for a Kill, Kill Switch, Driven to Kill, and Contract to Kill, to name but a few. Although I'd like to point out that I wasn't in Kill Bill, A Time to Kill, or Kill and Kill Again. Although I would have liked to be in that one, because the word kill is in the title not once, but twice. I just want everyone to know that I'm available for film work, but with a few caveats. I have to wear an oversized, padded, full-length leather jacket for the duration of the film. The movie has to be filmed in either Bulgaria or Romania and have the word kill in the title, preferably three or four times. I spend at least 70% of my scenes sitting down, preferably on the phone, either to a younger martial artist who handles the action sequences or an attractive woman in their 20s whom I will somehow seduce. Although I refuse any adult scenes of any kind, it has to be made unequivocally clear in the script that they fancy me. A stunt double will be used for any scenes that require movement that takes place beyond sea level or on an incline of any degree. The closest I get to a physical fight is ordering a Chinese takeaway, which I may or may not decide to fall asleep in the middle of. This is entirely at my discretion. My character must also have one of the following names. Dagger Whiplash, Jack Knife, Buck Stops, Eric Mahogany, Jake Machine, Finley Quasar, or Calvin Hammer. If you are a producer or director that can meet these demands, let's get together and work on a movie. Contact me at stevensegal at lycos.com. P.S. I didn't star in A View to a Kill, but I did the fight choreography, so I kind of was in it in a way. Brilliant. That is not only a heartfelt message, but also a fascinating insight into an artist's method, I think. Yeah, and just the machinations of Hollywood, or rather, Romanian filmmaking. <laughs> In a way, I'm surprised that Steven Seagal didn't show up in Apocalypse Z. Sorry, Z. <laughs> yeah, but Uvi Ball did, so that's fine. The thing is, yeah. it doesn't make any difference if you call it Z or Z, because the pun doesn't make any sense, because it was World War Z, as in World War Three. But yeah. this is, what, Apocalypse Three? No, it doesn't make any sense. If this was the third in a trilogy of films, I'd have no interest in watching the first. In fact, let's just leap into Apocalypse Z, okay? Yes. So I'll let you, I'll let you do the description. But before, mm. before you do do the description and we talk about it, I want to make it very clear to everyone listening to this that this is a film that not only was awful, but also was kind of the stamp on my the end of my tolerance for this kind of cynical filmmaking. This was the end of the line for me personally. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was not good then, I think is what you're trying to say. Um, so this the story is that these mercenaries are sent to Romania, obviously, instantly sent to Romania, to plant a bomb and destroy a bunch of zombies. That's really it. So it's quite a simple plot. Um, they find out they've been double-crossed when they get there by the US government. We'll come on to that in a bit. But... They find out they've been double-crossed and uh, they basically have to get out of there and find another means of transport to get the hell out of there because the clock's ticking and this huge bomb, nuclear bomb, I think, is going to yeah. go off and wipe out the whole place. So, cue 90 minutes of them driving around an industrial estate. <laughs> it stars... I think his name is something like uh, John Mitchell, but I, for a good 20 minutes of the film, I honestly thought that it was John Nettles from Bergerac, just like with a load of makeup on or something. 
Um, the, yeah, the film is is diabolical. The, the whole the whole it's shot. Um, there are scenes that are supposed to be filmed in, I guess, some sort of like American embassy, but everything is shot with like extreme close-ups. You can't see any of the surroundings; just the person's face is talking, and possibly like a hint of an American flag behind them to make you think, "Oh, this is obviously in America, and not in a warehouse in Romania." And yet, um, there isn't a single American person in it, apart from the, the sort of main act, the sort of main you know, yeah. hero, who we'll, we'll have to talk about that because it, there's a sequence in that film that is so jarring that you think, mm. why? So I've got no one to root for. Yeah, everyone in the film is supposed yeah. to be working for the American government, but they've all got like really pronounced British regional accents. Yeah, so, or, you know, German or, well, the thing is, the president of the United States literally phoning in his performance for about yeah. three minutes is Yui uh, Ball, Uwe yeah. Ball. And it's it is the highlight of the movie, to be fair, because he comes on the screen and starts going in a really thick German accent. He's like, I'm here on my ranch in Texas. Um, and then he goes, he starts talking about how they've got to sort out the zombie problem because he needs to get back to screwing horse on my golf course. Yeah. So, yeah, so. staggering. But that. That was the best bit because it was so ridiculous and he managed to shoehorn a bit of like criticism of us into there oh yeah um so anyway so it's really a kind of action zombie film um but it's it it fails on every conceivable level of like script performance plot logic um tension the only well i'll, I'll start with something good to say about it the practical effects when they have practical effects, they're pretty good. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, really, good. they're really nice, messy, sort of gnarly zombie effects, which are yeah. quite cool. Um, yeah, so it doesn't make any sense, though, because they get there, they realise they've been double-crossed. They're already just having really contrived arguments with each other for no apparent reason, even yeah. though they keep saying, oh, this is an easy job, get it done. All you have to do is go in and plant a bomb, get out, you get $5 million. So it's like, right, they would just be... Regardless of whether they're mercenaries or not, they would be professional about it. And they'd just be like, right, let's get on with it. We don't have to talk to each other. But no, they're instantly having massive go at each other, especially these two, John Nettles and this other guy. And um, and then the other guy gets killed really early on. And suddenly John Nettles is over by him, like crying and saying, oh, my brother, my friend, like weeping over his body. And it's like, hang about. You were literally just having a massive go at each other. And like you didn't have any interest in each other's welfare at all until this point. So anyway, the script, then, yeah, yeah go sorry, on. And I was just going to say that the, everything about it, because usually when these films have bad scripts, yeah. you think at least be some decent action. But um, <laughs> when the, when the sort of zombies start ramping up, um, the the main guy who is actually American, or I think is like a, an ex bodybuilder, he he they've turned up fully armored. Like they've 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 gone there in all the usual gear they would take to this mm. sort of thing, and the main guy just points his gun a huge like assault rifle at the zombie the oncoming zombie horde and it clicks and he just throws it away straight yeah. away and is instantly reduced to his sidearm and then when they catch up with john nettles and the rest including a woman who is there's a joke made in the film about her being asian but she's not <laughs> she's just got like like flicks on her eyelashes and and some, it's she's like got an slight wingtips on her makeup yeah. um so it's bizarre. But then he meets up with John Nettles and he says, how much ammo have we got? And, he, and he's like, I'm down to my sidearm. And then John Nettles holds up a shotgun and just says, I've got 12 rounds for this piece of shit. And I thought, that's the gun you chose to bring. That's obviously one you're comfortable with. 
Yeah. And why have you thrown away your assault rifle? But just because it yeah. clicked once. You came in a massive like military truck thing or Jeep. Load presumably loads of room for like guns and ammo. So this is really your decision to make. Um but so yeah, awful action sequences. The we better mention the the weird backstory with the um main character, the really boring main character. But yeah. right it keeps having it has this flashback near the start, right? Where he <laughs> He appears to be in some kind of war situation and there's and he is definitely there. And this young girl is definitely there, a captive, uh, like a war prisoner, but, you know, just a civilian or whatever. And she is attacked. You can't see who's attacking her. She's attacked. She's raped. And it's like, OK, so you assume that that's him because you've just seen his face, seen her. That happens. You put two and two together. So it's like basically the flashback is, OK, it's ambiguous, but that's the assumption you make because of the nature of film language. And so for a good half of the movie, you're just assuming that this guy is like a child rapist and, and he's the one we're meant to be rooting for. It's bizarre. And it only then has another flashback to, to then reveal what really happened that you realize that he's innocent, but it's like, why put that doubt in our minds? What, what narrative function did that have to make us believe that he was a monster for that entire time. Cause it doesn't add anything to the character development, to the themes of the film. The Awful. flashback sequences that are interspersed throughout are bizarre anyway, because they just kind of hard cut to them with no, but they kind of flow. So like, it'll be like someone in a van turning up and then it'll be them. And then you'll just realize like halfway through the scene. Oh, this is actually like from before, but yeah, there's no like you say there's no sort of narrative flow to it it just kind of happens you yeah. so you think why are these flashbacks happening they don't add anything anyway it's just they're to pad out the running time they could have this is a film where it had a very simple idea but they tried to overcomplicate it and and to be honest it, it's like i don't know if the budget informed the script or whatever but they never get off this industrial estate and it's and the thing is they've got a vehicle they need to get away, many miles away, in order to survive this inevitable blast. Nuclear explosion. Yeah. yeah. And yet they keep stopping. They keep stopping the car, it, whether it's to chat, whether it's to go into a building for no reason whatsoever, and then to kick off another action scene. And it's like, it, and the trouble is you can't, that makes it really hard to sympathise so we've already think we're sympathizing, trying to sympathize with the child rapist. And then on top of that, a load of people make stupid decisions. So there's a, there's a bit where one of the, they're like, they have a conversation, the sort of survivors saying, right, we need, we really need to like, we've got 30 minutes to get out of range of this nuclear blast. And then obviously a flashback happens. And at the end of the flashback, the camera sort of pans out and they're all gathered around watching a home video on a, on a camcorder. And you think, you, you know, you realize there's a nuclear blast. Like, you might want to get your scooter on. You, you really have to go. Um, yeah. And, like, John, that people just sacrificing themselves for no reason at all. Yeah. And, and constantly saying, I've got a plan. You're just going to have to trust me. And then dashing off to do something really stupid. Yeah, just tell me what the plan is, and then we can yeah. all be on board. Ah, it's terrible. It's really, really bad. Why, um, so why, why is it particularly that this was the film to break you? I, it's because I've always... I mean, at the moment, I'm I'm sort of immersed in in a personal mission to find a good Don the Dragon Wilson film, and I've not found one yet. But it made me think 
but in the 90s when you had films that were shot on location in like LA, New York, wherever, and you could always like sort of think, oh, you know, there's always like a nice interesting backdrop and sort of familiar sights and sounds sort of thing. Mm. And, and and there's always like some level of quality to the, whether it be, and in those films in the 80s, 90s, even if it's just looking at someone's trousers and thinking, they are bright. Like, that's fine. That's sometimes enough to kind of sustain me for a 90 <laughs> minute hour. Carry you through. Yeah, um, like voluminous pockets or something. That's fine. Give me, give me some baggy pockets to look at, and I'm sorted. But then, I realised that at the end of the kind of the DVD market sort of really kicked off in the early 2000s, and it was like anything could get released with like less quality control than the Nintendo eStore. You, you realise that oh, actually, these films are just really cynically made because there's like Z effort in this the scenes sometimes just don't even follow each other and make any narrative sense people are saying things that don't make sense there's mm. no like we were kind of lucky with this one because at least the practical fans were half decent but i'm watching a load of like non-actors driving around a romanian industrial estate <laughs> and for like 80 minutes and you think everyone involved in this film knows it's crap and it, yeah. it reminds me of like the asylum features where if they're like winking at you, it's not funny. You want to watch something that's yeah. got some genuine heart where someone was trying to have this kind of, you know, trying to do something, it ended up being a noble failure or it yes. was kind of dated enough to enjoy, you know, um, it's not particularly contemporary, but you can still enjoy it for different reasons. This is made just because they'll think, oh, anyone will watch anything. Yes. The whole thing, there is such a thing as so bad it's good, but the filmmakers, I don't think the filmmakers can be aware of that because I think that spoils it. If As soon as the filmmaker starts winking at you and saying, yeah, we know it's bad, then it... Or, or settling for just general badness, then it it can't be so bad as good. It's It's got to have something behind it where someone's really attempted to make something of quality. Yeah. And which is why, you know, the, the best so bad it's good films are... Or almost like the most heartfelt. I mean, if you watch like, you know, The Room or something like that, the reason it's hilarious is because it's clearly trying to do something serious. But and, it's just not capable of but, doing it. <laughs> but it's massively <clears throat> overreaching itself, which is brilliant. But then you can't, you wouldn't be able to deliberately do that again. You wouldn't be able to capture that lightning in the bottle again, sort of thing. So, yeah, it was a bad movie. And it, I know what you mean. It seems like it's, it's a, a film made by committee. It's like they've almost looked at what it is, what we can do to maximise our tiny audience. Right, zombies are in. Uh, we have some action. We'll have this brownie grey filter to make it a bit look, look a bit like Call of Duty. Um, yeah, we'll... we've got to, we've got to point out as well that this property that like Uvi Ball was in. It's made by his production company. He produced it. And um, yep. it's based on, well, we initially thought it was based on a 2007 Wii game that none yep. of us had ever heard about, which is quite unusual for me and Rupert to not have ever heard about a game. And when we looked into it, it's actually an unreleased Wii game. So Uvi Ball obviously <laughs> bought the rights. Mm -hmm. I thought, I can't be bothered to make this. It's just not worth it, but I've got to do something. So yep. they, he just kind of said, I'll be in it for a couple of minutes. My name may get some viewers. And then he just uh, sort of basically just sent it out to just be cobbled together by whoever and it yeah. just it's just disheartening i expected Absolutely. more from uv well yeah i mean i suppose i do want if he directed it you know what might have been or written it then yeah, he might have, have made he might have been out of polish a turd <laughs> so yeah um so i'll have a 
a quick rundown of Behind the Mask, The Legend of Leslie Vernon, because this yes. is one that um, you mentioned last week. The, the, the title is cumbersome, I've got to say. Like, I genuinely think some type film titles work against their material, and it's, it's a pity, really, because Behind the Mask, colon, The Legend of Leslie Vernon. Please, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Oh, is it? Okay. I think so. <laughs> well, Maybe it is the legend. Well, I... Anyway, like the fact that we're not really sure doesn't really <laughs> yeah. kind of speaks to what I'm saying, really. And, you know, it, but the thing is, because it is quite a good film and the premise is like like you mentioned last time, it's a faux documentary where like Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers and Chucky and everything are real. And the document, this documentary team meet a genuine in inverted commas slasher killer who and he explains his methods um and like the kind of stuff that he likes to do, like scaring girls, leaving one survivor, removing like the batteries from the flashlights and stuff. And, you know, all these like mechanical little things he does to create the effect um, that we see in horror movies. But it's cool the way that it's done as if he's genuinely real. And the and what you see on screen uh, as a result, it also really happens. It's quite a cool meta idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's almost like a kind of more blunt version of Scream, really, with a, that extra meta layer. Um, and then, so we see these methods, him describing his methods, and then the results kind of play out like a regular narrative film. Obviously, Robert England rocks up as a professor, the Donald Pleasance role, um, and Zelda Rubenstein, I noticed, out of Poltergeist. Good. I think she died soon afterwards. Yeah, I think that was the last film, yeah. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> I just found it consistently funny the way that like the Vernon himself is so like genial and like, <laughs> and like he's oh, quite goofy. Yeah. 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 And he's a bit of a, cl- and you're like really enthusiastic and yet he'll just say really dark things in a really like joyful way. Uh, and the way that in, I think it's, he goes to see his parents, doesn't he? And it's like, and they're really, really like encouraging him and just making out like the real apple pie kind of people. And just making out like, oh, it's just, oh, it's great to see you doing so well and stuff. Like, so, so dedicated. Yeah, really. So dedicated. Like, it's so wholesome. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's it's deliberately a very different style to the films it's kind of referencing. It's very naturalistic and laid back and ironic. And it's almost like playing on that thing about the mun- mundanity of evil. Because, of course, like slasher things they they really make the the killer like larger than life and much more than a human and yet this is just about this kind of slightly derpy guy going around um doing it as kind of almost like a like a a job like a joyful job um i think in the last act is like where it kind of becomes more of a generic slasher and i think it's probably less interesting than the rest of the film but I definitely but it, think it, it, it earns that. It's like okay, oh, we're doing this. Yeah. But... In a way, it kind of had to end up like that because you you really want to see a lot of these things play out, um, and it is is quite clever. And so, in the absence of Scream, then I think this is a pretty good next stop, really. So it's called Behind the Mask, The Legend of Leslie Vernon, or possibly The Rise of Leslie Vernon. (laughs) It's Leslie Vernon. Um, I I, I really liked it, and I'm surprised that the the cast didn't go on to do sort of greater things, because they're they're quite cool. And did you think as well, the main woman, did she remind you of Scarlett Johansson, or was that just me? Um, A little. 
Okay. Yeah, I can see it. She's a bit more mumsy. <laughs> oh, sorry that she was heavier jumpers, Rupert. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I watched a film I watched on my, last Monday on um, on Netflix was The Call with Halle Berry. Have you seen this? Oh, yeah. uh, no, I haven't. I've, oh, no. I've spotted but it. Obviously, after watching Cellular and really enjoying it, uh, Faith said, there's another one you called The Call. And I thought she was talking about the remake of, oh, my God, what is it called? The Stranger, whatever it was, with... Um, there was a remake of it starring Tommy Flanagan as the main bad guy. You know, that old urban legend about the babysitter on the phone and then he's in the house right. or whatever it is. But I, I was completely wrong. And this was um, this is actually a film about sort of a 911 operator played by Halle Berry, who um, through kind of um, a girl gets attacked by someone and she calls 911 and Halle Berry is telling it to hide. And the call ends just as the killer is leaving the house. Uh, this is all in the first few minutes. And and then the call drops, so Halle Berry rings her back, and then the killer hears the phone ring under the bed, kills her, and Halle Berry just basically does a huge breakdown. Um, right. and, ov- and obviously falls into the arms of Morris Chestnut, as we all will at some point. Um, so then it cuts to her just being a trainer there, and she sort of gets dragged into an, a similar call where another girl is being kidnapped and she's in the trunk of a car and she rings 911, Halle Berry gets the call and she's kind of determined at any cost to, to keep the girl alive. And okay. it's, it's actually really good. Uh, like, it's really tense and it never gets ridiculous because um, there's a lot of like really nice tension in just when, you know, you'd think it would just be a girl in the trunk and then she's given like tiny bits of information and Halle Berry's telling her to do certain things like kick out one of the taillights. So, you know, we, we know you're on this huge stretch of highway, but like hopefully someone will ring in or we'll see the damage or like there was this painting there. She's like, just pour it out the back so we can see marks you're leaving. And everyone yeah. is kind of involved in finding it. And it's really cool. And it keeps that sort of tension up. And Halle Berry is pretty cool in it. It's like she really really keen to not let this girl die uh, played by um the girl is played by uh, uh, abigail breslin yes um and yeah and there it was it was there was a point in it at the end the last 10 15 minutes again it's like okay we're going into like straight out kind of sort of horror thriller territory that's fine because i've enjoyed the film so much i won't let this happen but there's a there's a moment that, that really tickled me with the the the, the 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 sort of person who's kind of behind it all he's really like um really sort of uh threatening in a kind of like full of nervous energy like obviously can't control his demons kind of way mm. and there's a bit where they're in like at the end of the film they're in like this um this sort of his, his place where he's, he's keeping her and he's going to do certain things to her and she sort of sprays him in the face with like hairspray and runs and locks herself in another room and is kind of like um in this sort of place he's got and then when, mm. when she runs in the room he laughs to himself and says you are not gonna like what you see in there <laughs> and it really really tickled me because for a second he's like oh god you're not gonna like that when you turn that light on you are not gonna like what you see and it really tickled me it's like a moment of levity in the film um so yeah it's it's a really good kind of like um like high octane 90 minute thriller um and uh, to be honest, it reminded me a little bit when you see actors that have, you know, had such high profile careers like Halle Berry. Or, it reminded me of Kevin Costner. Well, you chuck yeah. him in like a 90 minute thriller, and you're like, this is brilliant. This is like yeah. clearly better than anything you've done in ages. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think Halle Berry is good in everything she's in. It tends no, to, well, yeah, she's one I of these people who tends to elevate bad material because she's been in the odd bad thing, let's face it. Um, but, you know, just like I said about Catwoman, she did exactly what she needed to do. Just yeah, because, and... <laughs> just because the material's bad, doesn't mean that you know the lead actors aren't going to do a job. But yeah, this sounds actually genuinely good. It sounds pretty <laughs> taut. 
her hair is astonishing in this film. It's like yes. um, it's like a massive curly bob, isn't it? Yeah, it's not an afro because you think it's like an afro, but then you realize it's like it's just like really carefully styled. It's like huge, like really beautifully coiffed bob. I was like, I was loving it. Um, <laughs> I do get hair jealousy in certain films. I look at you, Sandra Bullock, in Twenty Eight Days. <laughs> um, so <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Jealous of Michael Jackson. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jealous of Jacko. Um, That's a callback to like a, one of our podcasts about three <laughs> weeks ago, isn't it? Oh, people God. got to keep up. They should be chain ganging these anyway. So yeah, yeah, that's that's the call, and it's a recommended one. Where's where's that available? Netflix. Okay. Ooh, not my keyboard then. Um, the Departed is on Prime. Have you ever watched a film, disliked it, and then watched it years later and wondered why you disliked it? Um, no, no, um, not because I didn't, I didn't particularly like this film when it first, it was just like 2005. But weren't you a big fan of Infernal Affairs? That was the, I think that might have been the issue. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I loved in Well, I love the original Infernal Affairs. Um, the sequels became progressively sillier and more kind of operatic, but I really liked the first one. And I think part of what bothered me about this, I think the part is based on the first two and so it's quite sprawling and long and but whereas infernal affairs was very taut very you know compact anyway the story is about um set in boston and there's this big gangster called frank costello played by jack nicholson who uh, he runs the place basically so matt damon and leonardo dicaprio are cadets in the special police force so matt damon was a regular kid um, before, you know, long ago, he was a regular kid um, in Boston and he was brought under Frank's wing um, and he is now working for Frank Costello as uh, as a rat, basically, in the department. Now, Leonardo DiCaprio, his character, he was not a regular kid. He was the son of gangsters. He was a bad boy, etc. But now he is a decent adult and he is working undercover for the department as one of Frank's, Frank Costello's goons, basically. So you've got basically the, you know, they're both, they're both kind of like living a lie in their own way. So Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to gather evidence um, while also trying to find out who the mole in the department is. Meanwhile, Matt Damon is warning Frank Frank's crew of the investigation whilst also trying to work out who the undercover agent is because, of course, they don't know who each other are. So it's... It's a ridiculously, like, it's a complex yet hilariously brilliant setup, really. And it it just, it lends so much potential for, like, multiple layers of double-crossing and stuff. Um, I mean, the film doesn't really stop long enough to really consider uh, that it's actually quite obvious who the undercover cop is um, in, the, in the form of Leonardo DiCaprio. But anyway... Um, Mark Wahlberg's also in it. His hair in this film. Oh my god! Isn't it's it like, like a jet black buffon with no style? Yeah, well, it's got, he's got really aggressive side parting, and it's swept <laughs> over to the side. It's ridiculous. Anyway, he's quite funny as a super aggressive cop, and I just thought he's basically his character in the other guys. It's, it was really funny. Um, it, it's interesting to see Matt Damon play an asshole. Basically, Jack Nicholson's good. Um, Ray Winston is in it, putting on a Boston accent. Wow. <laughs> we do love an accent on The Men Who Talk. 
Vera Farmiga is in it. Uh, and she, in another ridiculous complication to throw into the mix, she happens to be seeing both Matthew Dame, uh, Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio at the same time without the other knowing. It's <laughs> preposterous. Anyway, the script is really good. And it's got this kind of believable kind of street language, yet the wordplay is very complex. And you are genuinely rooting for Leonardo DiCaprio uh, because he's he has such a rough start in life, like being the son of gangsters and having that baggage. And then, of course, he's just in this situation, this undercover cop situation where anything could go wrong at any second. So you really, <laughs> really want him to be OK. Um yeah, so it's it's a really exciting movie and a really well uh, well written movie, and it's long, but it doesn't feel long. Um, I don't think it's Martin Scorsese. It's Martin Scorsese, by the way. Um, I don't think it's Scorsese's best looking movie. There are a lot of office scenes which look very flat in terms of like the camera work and the lighting. Um, I, yeah, I, it's it it isn't his best looking movie. It's one of his more kind of visually dull movies. Which is surprising, really, given the, you know, this is kind of his wheelhouse, really. But um, maybe it's possible that he wanted to keep things a bit quieter on the kind of like um, on the directorial front, on the cinematography front, because the script is so complex that perhaps if he had flashy focus on it. Yeah, I think he just wants to keep it simple, which is fair enough. Um, Yeah. And it's basically an absurdist tragedy, which is quite an unusual thing to see in Hollywood. Um, yeah. I and mean, as I say, it's a long film, but it's so packed with content and the drama is so good. Um, it's, and it's very fast moving. So it's not that it's a slow film. It's just, there's a lot in it and it moves very quick. So yeah, definitely worth watching it again. Even if you had is it reservations, is it? 2005, six. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And yeah. That's on- that is on prime. Um, the next one for me is a film called Cold Skin, which is I think it's from 2017, and stars David Oakes and uh, Ray Stevenson. And the story is that David Oakes plays sort of a like a, a sort of weatherologist. I'm going to say meteorologist. Yeah, that that'll do. Yeah, and, uh, he's a weatherman, and it's sort of um, you know the sort of turn of the century, and he is on this sort of vessel to take him out to to study the weather for a full year on this remote island. And he gets dropped off there in and, and this just like this shack. The previous sort of inhabitant is nowhere to be seen. And the only person there is is Ray Stevenson. He literally didn't recognize for 40 minutes, even though he's in Punisher Warzone. So he should have been straight on my radar. Um, and he's just kind of like this really belligerent uh, sort of stone-faced lighthouse keeper who appears to have sort of lost his mind. And he's there to sort of just escape the trappings of the sort of what was then the modern world. But the first night he is there, he gets in his sort of this really, really worryingly exposed shack. He gets attacked by these kind of amphibious humanoid creatures and just barely fights mm-hmm. them off. And so he, the, the next morning he's like, I'm going to speak to Ray about this, quite <laughs> frankly. <clears throat> um, it's a really pretty film. It's because it's sort of it's set against this. Um, it's, it's like an island, but it's not like a paradise at all. It's really hard black volcanic rock and like really thunderous waves crashing against the sort of the jagged the jaggedness of it and and when he sort of the when he meets ray stevenson he realizes that he has got one of these amphibious creatures that he is um that he's basically using as as sort of a 
like a sex slave almost because they're mm. quite humanoid and he's kind of sort of uh, domesticated i'll say her but it's in it and he's just basically raping it and like feeding it scraps yeah. <clears throat> so it's good because i thought oh this is going to be like a because i just thought it's just a really nice cover so i just thought i'll watch it it's a thriller boom a horror film sort of thing but <clears throat> david Oaks is a really interesting screen presence because he's quite boyish and unthreatening and, and in this in this film I, I didn't really know where it was going to go but mm. at the end, I know that I wanted it to go somewhere else because <laughs> while it was like funny to watch, the, like without giving too much away in, in, the, in, in terms of spoilers, he sees this sort of humanoid creature that they call Aeneas that Ray Stevenson is, is sort of keeping and beating and so on. And he is, can obviously see the sort of, um, the fact that it's sentient and that like it, it, makes, it makes gifts for him so he can clearly think and, it, and it's got like an emotional cycle. Mm. And the things that basically Ray Stevenson does and, and he is sort of forced to do, you think really the sort of the way the film goes and how it sort of, um, how it culminates and wraps itself up. You think I don't really have any sympathy for you because of the things you've chosen to do throughout this film. So I'm not sure where yeah. the director wanted my loyalties to lie. Mm. Uh, so while it was an enjoyable, do you think film, that was a deliberate ambiguity or do you just think it was just slightly faulty writing? I would say it was faulty writing because I wasn't, it wasn't one of those films where I sat afterwards and thought about it. Like I watched it with Finn, we had a chat. We both just came to the conclusion that he's not forced into these things. He kind of half chooses to do them. So, you know, there are so many Mm -hmm. times when he could just stop what's happening and he chooses not to. So at the end of the film, when it all kind of wraps up, you think, yes, I'm (laughs) not sure if I'm completely on board with all your decision-making, Mr. Oaks. But um, yeah, I enjoyed it, and it's, it's it's a very pretty film to watch. And the, again, the creature effects are really good. It's a mixture of um, weirdly one of the I've, I don't have a name to hand. One of the the actress who plays the sort of the creature mm. is actually in that really tedious Spanish film I watched the other day, the mm. murder in the Twin Cities. So um, Twin Murders in the White City, I think it was called. But um, it's worth when was this made? Two thousand seventeen. Okay. So, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a mixture of practical effects and CG yeah. as well, I was going to say, sorry. But decent, tasteful CG. Yeah, because the creatures only attack at night. And obviously, because it's oh. a lighthouse, there's like flashes of beams of light and you, you can sort of see them scrabbling up the, the rocks and stuff. And it, it's not like, okay, here's a load of CG that we're going to really hone in on so you can see the weightlessness of it. Used sparingly, right, good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds good. What's it called again? Cold Skin, and that is on Netflix. Nice. Sounds like one I might want my own to watch. I'd be intrigued to see what you think about it. That'd be good, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'll move on then to Dirty Dancing. Um, finally. I know. Genuinely, finally. It's been on my watch list for ages. Uh, I was going to watch it with my wife, but in the end, you know, we just never had that moment, so I had to watch it on my own. It's the only way. This is a film I'm extremely familiar with, by the way. I've seen it about 25 times. Have you really? Yeah, I don't know why. I just like, my mum used to watch certain films on repeat, yeah. and this was just one I happened to just sat through a lot. And I, I do like the music in it, and I like Patrick. I have never seen it before. So oh. this was interesting for me. So obviously no particular nostalgia. Um, obviously, I, I was aware <laughs> that it's an 80s cult classic, but other than a few tunes, actually, it's not quintessentially 80s because uh, you've got like Hungry Eyes. And of course, I've had the time of my life. No, um, no doubt there's some brackets in that title somewhere. Um, <laughs> it, it, yeah. So in a way, I think that helps it be timeless because the fact that it's set in the 60s. Um, yeah. And I I did like 
its presentation of the dreary kind of butlin style entertainment of their the compound they visit because basically uh this teenager called well what she's 18 i guess a called baby nicknamed baby goes to she's on a family holiday with her, her parents and sister to this slightly depressing like um park in the mountains like uh where you kind of you stay in a stay in a nice villa and at night you'll go out and watch some gentle comedy and some aging musicians and some bit of swing dancing. I know it's a Dennis Nedry from Jurassic Park is the MC of this whole depressing affair. <laughs> Good. Which is quite amusing. So anyway, so one night baby is tempted into the staff lounge area where she meets Johnny Castle played by Patrick Swayze. What a man. Uh, and yeah, it's a bit of a coming of age moment, I suppose. I mean, she, it's like it's pretty. The the imagery is pretty clear. I mean, it, she's literally kind of called across this bridge, and she's even given a warning by a man carrying melons. I don't know if there's any kind of Freudian subtext to that, but anyway, there you go. Um, it's weird enough to be notable. Notable. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of from then on, it's like, well, Patrick Swayze is very like, um, he's very much like uh, an extrovert living life to the full kind of thing. Also, he seems anyway at first. So it was very exciting to her. And he's older and he's very kind of confident. And it, for her, then it's sort of a journey from naivety to seeing how the world works. Um, it's from kind of wealth to privilege as in understanding seeing a world where people have come from and how some people come from disadvantaged backgrounds etc uh, a journey from being passive to being confident um and from fear to fearlessness i think and i think that goes for both the characters in a way it still feels quite fresh to see a film which shows sexual desire from a female perspective because it is interesting that she's very much less lusting over patrick swayze and his body <laughs> um yeah and um yeah so baby's motivation for this is the other thing baby's motivation for for going into this dance tournament with johnny is is quite interesting as well because it's not that she just wants to be close to him all the time or anything like that it's not an infatuation thing it's because his usual dance partner has to get an emergency abortion so yeah i remember it being surprisingly dark watching it as an adult yeah something that totally pissed me, passed me by as a child i thought this is really foul she has like a, a botched yeah. back alley abortion yeah basically and um I, I like the way that the abortion thing isn't treated as a moral issue it's treated as a medical issue like yes. there's no one around to say you know this is wrong or it's just right okay we need to get this sorted somehow so and i think that it's pretty well written because the way that Johnny, uh, Patrick Swayze's character, he's not just moody and cocky for the sake of it. It's almost like a defense mechanism because he's really, really terrified by the prospect of actually being in love because he's basically just been going around shagging women. Basically, that's that's what he does. But then, um, so it's interesting how she, it seems like Baby is the the terrified party in this situation, but actually it's it's him He's the one who's terrified and he's quite touchy and fragile and not an I not a, the pure ideal at all, in fact. Uh, 
And I did wonder if he was too old to play the role, but I think he is about right. He was quite a bit older than her, but and he's always looked a bit older than he is. But, but I suppose I think, the whole part of it is the fact that he's kind of locked in this sort of adolescent fantasy. Yes. When he's actually like, he's getting embarrassingly older yeah. than everyone else that he's around. Um, yeah, and it all, all leads up to a kind of big final act thing, which is pretty cool. It doesn't really make sense as such because it is still 1969 and they're listening to what's clearly an 80s pop song. So, <laughs> <laughs> everyone's like in the crowd is like, yeah, this is amazing. This must be the future of music. Yeah, is that gate reverb on that snare? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, I've never heard a snare like it. <laughs> I must tell my friend Philip Collins about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, Giorgio, get over here. Look at this. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a good film and it is a real crowd pleaser. Uh, I mean, if I was going to direct someone to the key Patrick Swayze film, I don't know if this. it's up against a pretty stiff competition because you've got, got Point Break, Ghost, Roadhouse. But it makes you realise that he was in some pretty awesome iconic films sorry but and, you, didn't, you didn't see tiger warsaw then. no <laughs> i well you know i could have gone on with a list but <laughs> i had to stop somewhere but <laughs> but like his i mean he has like just looking at those four dirty dancing ghost roadhouse point break i mean they're quite different really and yeah. i think he's he's interesting from the perspective of if you're going to do like i don't know a, a dissertation or something on masculinity he would be an interesting case because of his diff- slightly different um, depictions of masculinity in these films. So, yeah. And I think, yeah, it's a good film, Dirty Dancing. And I can understand why people worship it in a way, because it's got a bit of everything. Um, I just, re- as you were talking then, I, w- I was obviously listening, but I just realised that um, I- I- I've been making a mistake in my head for the last 10 years because the father in that film is played by Jerry Orbach. Right, and I thought he was the same person who was in a really, a, a, like a sort of a really maudlin kind of drama that I really like called Hard Eight, but it's actually Philip Baker Hall from 1996, starring. It's an early role for John C. Riley. So if anyone fancies that, it's Hard Eight with uh, Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley from '96. It just reminded me of it, and I just realised it's not Jerry Orbach. Is that Paul Thomas Anderson who made that? It could well be, you know. Yeah, I thought I think it might be in his first film. I really liked it. I watched it yeah. um, a few years ago, and it's yeah, a very quiet film. Um, okay, then, so moving on from Dirty Dancing, I watched Dirty Dancing 2. No, if I did. Um, I watched the, the Fanatic with John Travolta, directed by Fred Durst. Um, mm. And I, I... Faye chose this film based entirely on John Travolta's haircut in the thumbnail, because it's like a, it's like a bowl cut with a mullet at the back, all grey. But like a really high fringe, um, so I, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I've heard about this, and, I, and then I put it on, and it was like, you know, it was obviously a thriller just by the way the titles were coming up, John Travolta, and then when it said directed by Fred Durst, I did think, banger, banger. I've I've never listened to this man's music, let alone watch like a ninety-minute film that he's written. So the the premise is. Um, obviously being called the fanatic john travolta is someone who lives on sort of hollywood boulevard and is obsessed with um movie stars and specifically a movie star called i think his name's like hunter dunbar who is played by devon sour who everyone will remember from final destination um, of course and it's just about john travolta's character um 
trying to get it starts off with him trying to get uh, just an autograph off him for a jacket that's a prop from one of his films and he sort of gets fobbed off because he's done it in, at a really bad time and and he kind of gets more involved in, in getting his autograph and he tries to ingratiate himself in into um, Hunter Dunbar's life now I'm always really weary because in this film John Travolta plays someone who has clearly got learning difficulties and social issues yes um, so I, 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 I'm always dubious about that. I never feel comfortable anyway. But I thought that it was fine because as be, being someone who kind of goes to um, like video game expos, I am ex- exposed to a lot of people who clearly have like real social anxiety problems. And, mm. and I thought a lot of the stuff that John Travolta was doing, yeah, it's kind of over exit in some scenes. But so, yeah, it's pretty, you know, a lot of it's pretty close to what I personally yeah. have seen, you know, in a, in a sort of casual way, just going around these things, these events. And and it it gets across the the, the blind dedication and, and the blurring, not understanding that when someone is an actor or you know they're not really that person. Um, there's a really tedious narration by his best friend in it, and I think I don't know why it's in the film. It's just that she just keeps she's the characters in the film are very good and bad. Um, like John Travolta is kind of like a sort of misunderstood sort of person, and then his friend is a very good person, and she does the narration for no reason at all. And then uh, Devon Sawa's character is obviously very bad. And the, there are two real problems with the film. Uh, one of them is that it, it, the way people, it's not so much the way that John Travolta acts this character, it's the way that he's treated so badly at so many points in the film by people mm-hmm. who like, they have no, they just always attack him. And you're basically attacking someone who's got, you know, mental problems. And yeah. Devon Sawa's character um, just went, when he's um, interrupted by being asked for an autograph by John Travolta and it was called Moose for some reason. And, um, and he's trying to talk to his ex-wife on the phone. He just basically tells him to get lost. It's very clear that his character has got issues and that's mm. just, he's just completely dismissive of it. And it's almost to the point that his character is like, um, uh, like a comedy villain, really. Like you would not, yeah. you would, you'd have to be a really damaged person to speak to someone with mental like issues and learning difficulty in that way. It's it's quite preposterous. So you um, think it's disingenuous in the way that it depicts people's responses to him? That it's overly ag- uh, aggressive, aggressive and towards him. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a couple of people that are like you know kind of like oh hey moose how you doing and you know he dresses up as his kind of job as he dresses up as like a london bobby on hollywood boulevard and people have their pictures taken with him it's some funny scenes where he's like getting dressed in a public toilet putting the fake mustache on the, and the sort of tit hat and he's just like trying to put on a london accent it's, they are quite funny because it's so it's so wide of the mark um <laughs> but yeah the, it's yeah devonson's character is just ridiculous in it he's so hostile to him all the time um and at no point during this whole thing, as the sort of the, the sort of tension ramps up, d- d- does he think, "Oh, actually, I'm being a bit unfair on this guy who's clearly just a bit misguided." Mm-hmm. And there's a moment. I'm not going to say what happens, but there's a moment about halfway through the film where something happens, and there's a real moment where you think, "Ah, okay, now now my my loyalties may not be as clear cut as they were, Mr. Travolta." <laughs> and and I think it's a kind of a ridiculous plot point to in, to include because what it does is it kind of takes takes away your sympathy for him. So then you're left with like, oh, that didn't really need to happen. Kind of like mm. Cold Skin. You think I feel like there's like you're chucking too much into this film when it was actually being handled quite nicely. And now you're like, okay, that's just a ridiculous plot point. So it takes and, away uh, your sympathy. Um, yeah. But do, does that mean it takes away your empathy? I mean, is it that 
it's just frustrating that it's been such a turnaround in the character or is it that it doesn't make any sense to the character to have that included i think it just goes a bit too far in how okay. that how his character would react to a certain situation i think right. that it's a bit it's a bit over the top um okay. i will say though that although i did it actually i I probably wouldn't watch it again. I'd watch it with you if you checked it on. If you, you know, if you said you, you mind watching this again, and I and I kind of enjoyed it because I was waiting for it to go too far, and the ending kind of, kind of got on my nerves a little bit. But, um, Faye found the scenes where he's like in this guy's house, uh, in this kind of Beverly Hills mansion sort of thing, and the guy doesn't know he's there. Like really weirdly tense. Uh, like she was like really like properly like got a hand over her face, just saying, "Oh my God, just get out the house before he sees you." Because of course he's not he's not like a he's not like some subtly he's literally just walking around like like using his toothbrush and like eating his food and the guy's like in the Jeez. next room and and I was I kind of found it like quite darkly funny but Faye was really found it tense because um, he's kind of so amiable and clueless so yeah it's not it, I looked online after because of course I did nothing about it um, but it got slaughtered absolutely slaughtered and John Travolta got. <laughs> Um, like put up for like worst, or like a Razzie yeah. for worst actor, and I thought, no, I, I, it's fine. Again, if you have like, if you don't have these ridiculous expectations, it's it's a it's a it's a decent thriller. Yeah, yeah. Um, decent thriller, and would you say it's a decent exploration of the particular mental health problems depicted? Because I wonder if sometimes that's it can be an issue for professional critics to like um if if they're expecting a, a deep exploration of mental health and then what they get is like more of a genre thriller it, it can be quite a leap i know that for example joker was attacked for on similar grounds in its depiction of mental health but then you know is that what you're there for are you yeah, really no I, I i personally wasn't and and because i kind of have like sort of a little bit of experience with with people with similar issues yes I, I was quite sort of, I thought, yeah, I can actually, if you, if you took that, like if I actually stayed, spend a lot of time with a person, I, you could, yeah. all the idiosyncrasies, I can, I can imagine that would be, if it was taken to its like logical conclusion, that would be what the person would be like. Okay. It made sense to me. I didn't, I didn't think it was, I mean, it got a little bit full on at times, but it was never like, oh, you know, I was never thinking, oh, come on, really? Yeah. So, which to me is acceptable. I was happy with how it was all done. So that's The Fanatic and it's on... Oh, that was on. Oh, that was on Now TV. Oh, right. Okay. I'm branching out, baby. Branching out. <laughs> branching out or got a free trial? <laughs> I don't know. I still haven't decided on my dog's name. Um... <laughs> um, right then. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, to give it its full title. Yeah. This was uh, from the mid-90s. It was, it was written by Frank Darabont. He of... Shawshank Green Rich, Mile and Green yeah. Mile, was it the, directed by Kenneth Branagh? It was. So <laughs> we, we will come to that. But yes, yeah, so <laughs> this is right. Okay. Fra well, Frank Darabont was he was unflinching in his assessment of this movie because he wrote it and he absolutely hated it. He hated he hated the operatic direction that Kenneth Branagh took it. To be honest, I'm not really sure what he's expecting. Because, I mean, Kenneth Branagh up to this point had made, like, Henry V. I mean, it was so over the top, these films. Um, very theatrical in style. But anyway, he is right, though. The film is relentlessly, like, brash and loud and flashy. And the camera work is just drunk and reeling most of the time. Um, 
some of the production design is pretty stunning. Um, like there's there's one set with this enormous blue staircase, colossal blue staircase rising up the walls with no rails, and it just looks gorgeous. Um, and the, the kind of grimy um, kind of underworld of Ingolstadt, the village in Germany where the experiments are done, um, it looked pretty cool. Um, I noticed that Sherry Lungi plays Kenneth Branagh's uh, mother, even though she's only... I checked, I thought, hang on, she can't be that old. No, she's nine years older than him. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, you get... There's, uh, I like this, so Kenneth Branagh stars in it and directed it. Yeah, yeah. Right. So Kenneth Branagh is uh, playing um, Frankenstein. Um, so he is... Uh, he obviously wants to, you know research experiment with this technology of electrifying dead matter back to life basically and uh it, it's apparently pretty firmly kind of um respectful to the original book um so yeah it's i mean it's obviously pseudoscience and that but it, it's it's interesting anyway um robert de niro plays the monster um and he's not very good. It comes down to really he's he's horny and angry, really. And if he can't indulge one, then he'll indulge the other, to be honest. Um, in fact, I found that all of the performances were pretty bad. But I wonder if I don't know if, how to explain that, whether it's because of Kenneth Branagh's stage background. You would have thought that would make him good with actors or maybe it's just maybe he was reaching for this kind of over the top um theatricality which doesn't really come across very well on film but the problem isn't really that it's melodramatic as such because that's fine i mean you know bram stoker's dracula is melodramatic as well and and that's good but the problem here is that it's it's not a horror movie it's not directed like a horror movie it's directed like an action movie and it's got this really irritating bombastic score over the top which just sounds like an action movie there's no there's no kind of gothic um kind of atmosphere to it or anything it's just pure yeah it's just pure um bombastic cacophony of sound really um so yeah it's written by someone who loves horror and knows horror in the form of frank darabont and directed by someone who evidently doesn't want to make a horror film and it and the results are not great. It's more like a bunch of like Shakespearean lovies doing everything in their power to kind of bring dramatic weight to something that wants to be. It would rather be the Elephant Man than Frankenstein, put it that way. Right, okay. um, and yeah, I don't know whether it's to do with the original novel or what, but it's not clear what what we're meant to really think of Victor, Victor Frankenstein. Because there's this one bit where he has this big like wedding night love scene with all this kind of wailing music. And, and it's like we're meant to feel some sort of sympathy for uh, this hero. But he's really not a hero. I mean, he is a witch doctor who's shagging his sister. That is what's happening. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, not biological sister, but still. Um, <laughs> still a bit creepy. But yeah, so it's quite long, very melodramatic, not scary and not sad. And I think the not scary stuff is down to Kenneth Branagh's direction and his whole approach to it. And the not sad part is down to the performances 
I mean, the script is probably is okay, but the way it's delivered, it just doesn't. There's no emotional resonance whatsoever at the end. You just think, oh, just get on with it. It's a yeah. shame, really, because with, with um, this sort of subgenre of, of gothic horror we've touched upon the last few yeah. weeks, you've got, you know, watch Bram Stoker's Dracula, and it's, it's it's pretty much a masterpiece. And then and then you watch Interview with the Vampire, and you're like, oh, I'm just bored. And then yeah. you watch this, and it's just not good. It'd be interesting to sort of see if well, like really good sort of um, examples of the genre, especially sort of smaller ones. I think part of the problem is is that they need a certain budget because yeah, you can't, you can't just... throw money at it. It doesn't work in that no. genre. Well, I mean, like, because a lot of, obviously a lot of horror films are low budget and you can get away with it a lot of the time. But for something on this scale where you need these sets and everything, you don't want to be using CG backgrounds and stuff. You need to have, you need to have that physical presence there. So it's got to be pretty grand. And like, so you have occasional ones good ones like dracula or crimson peak which are really good and then but they're few and far between and they just don't make the money because the kind of horror films that people tend to be watching nowadays seem to be fairly grounded in the real world usually modern day and kind of relevant to current politics perhaps and gothic horror is so far away from that because of course they tend to be period pieces uh, they tend to be quite over the top. They tend to be very overtly supernatural. So I don't know. Maybe it's just it's probably very difficult to make a gothic horror film. Um, but there aren't, I guess, there aren't enough people out there like Guillermo del Toro who want to keep it alive. I guess. Yeah, I, f- I feel like I should watch Crimson Peak again, but I will not watch Mirachella's Frankenstein. I don't think I've ever seen it. No, I remember watching at the time and finding it boring and not much has changed in that regard. When was it released? Like, was it like mid-90s? Is it late 90s? Yeah, 90, I want to say 95, 96, about. Okay. Mm. So after Bram Stoker's Dracula as well. Oh, yeah. So they, they yeah. could have really they could have really learned from that. Yeah, after I guess it was part of that mini <laughs> movement of Bram Stoker and then Interview the Vampire and then I suppose then it was this. Maybe this, maybe Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I don't think it did terribly well so maybe it was the nail in the coffin i don't know um i will now talk about triple threat which is a martial arts action film i watched with tony ja iko uweis uh, and tiger chen we obviously know from um tony ja from the ong back series yeah. uh iko uweis is from um the gareth evans the raid series and tiger chen is from the man of tai chi which was starring and directed by Ken Reeves. And then, trio. I know, but also it's not just a triple threat because you've got Scott Adkins, my boy, and Michael J. White as well. So um, so this this came on. Um, it was one of those things when Faith said, I'm just going to have a quick nap. And I said, oh, I'm just going to quickly watch a martial arts film then. So I chucked it on. And it was it's a, it's a weird one. I really enjoyed it. It's obviously got a bit of money behind it. And I think a lot of people didn't like like it because they thought that cast it's going to be wall-to-wall fighting mm. but the story is that at the start um michael j white and a, and a few of his other guys use um eco uais and tiger chen as sort of this these guides these asian guides to lead them to this sort of place um where scott adkins they kind of kind of mercenary commanders being held 
and when he when he, they rescue him, they basically just blow the whole place up and turn on everyone. And so the film is sort of the the two guys and um, I'm trying to think which one it was that was captured. Now it was Iko Uwais that was captured, um, and him playing them both off each other as they both try to take each other out. And it's one of those films uh, that that at the start, right? So they blow up this camp. They rescue Skylakers. They blow up the camp, thinking that everyone's dead, and they're not. And then, and these this sort of group of mercenaries are on this mission, and they find out that the guys that they thought they killed have survived. But it makes no difference to them, right? So their plan mm. is to like is to like do this mission, kid, kidnap this Asian businesswoman, um, and then just ransom her and get a load of money, a load of money, and then just disappear. So they could just think, oh, those three guys that, like, as far as we know, just like led us to that village. I don't really care if this way or not. We'll do this, get our money, and then skadoodle. But they just, they just get like really hell bent on killing them for no real reason. In fact, there's a point where um, Michael J. White says, "All oh, those guys have survived," and Scott Adkins actively says, oh, "Like, I don't care. It's fine. Let's just do this and go." And then when that job gets botched, they're like, "Right, we need to split up and disappear for a bit until the heat cools down." And Scott Adkins mm-hmm. is the one that says, "No, nah, actually, we need to kill those guys now." <laughs> and, right. So <laughs> the, the film the film kicks off, and I really liked it because it's quite weirdly lighthearted. When it cuts to sort of the tree of the sort of um, the, the Asian actors uh, who've kind of re- trying to keep the girls safe, they have some nice banter. The only problem is is that. Um, they sometimes speak in their own languages where, where there's uh, subtitles, which is fine. But then there are scenes when they speak to each other in English. And obviously English, I don't know if it was like learned phonetically, but when they're trying to be um, sort of dramatic mm. using not their own language, it's like the wrong parts of words emphasizing it. It comes uh. across as really clunky. Whereas if they just said, look, just speak, just speak your own language really. And, you know, and that's fine. We'll just subtitle it. It would, why, it would have been much smoother. Why is there a mix why, I don't know. They, I couldn't, in I couldn't work it out. some scenes they use the the native language, yeah. And obviously they're prepared to do that. Yeah. Then why not just go the whole hog and just have them speak the language? I don't know. I was trying to work it out, but because I thought initially I thought it was because there was like other characters who were like American characters in the scene they were talking to, but no, even when they were amongst themselves, they would like flip between them, and I'm not entirely sure why it happened. It just it just made certain scenes a bit more awkward than they needed to be. Mm. Um. Yeah, there's, there's some really nice, um, there's some really nice sort of set pieces, and there's the, the sort of ending, like the, you know, the big sort of fight that leads up to is is quite satisfying as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I quite liked it, and I was quite surprised when I did watch it afterwards um, that it got pretty slaughtered just because it wasn't. I think it was just pe- too much expectation. I mean, you've got that kind of cast; you just expect, yeah. well, people dug two hours of action. But um, I thought it was quite. I thought it was sometimes quite funny. It's quite nice. It was nice to see. It was nice to see like um, a lot of Asian actors in a, like a, like a, a like a relatively big budget movie where it wasn't just them fighting, and they actually got time to talk. And there was some sort of lighthearted comedy scenes. I quite enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I also will say that I'm just going to say that Scott Atkins dyes his beard in that movie. <laughs> I'm just going to come out and say it. And if anyone, <laughs> someone if anyone, had to say it. If anyone is watching this, if any film, any actor is ever in, and they dye their hair, that's fine. But don't dye your beard to match it. It just looks silly. I think that's another Steven Seagal trope. But yes. I, I would not criticize him, given that he's sponsoring this show. So. Oh yeah, obviously we can't just have a go with him. No. But yeah, that's uh, and that's also what um, John Nettles did as well in Apocalypse <laughs> Z. Was he just stupid? He's clearly in his sixties. He is constantly out of breath in that film. Yeah, there were there were scenes. There was a scene early on in Apocalypse Z 
where um, he someone runs back to him, runs back to John Nettles. So he John Nettles has not done the running, and obviously the <laughs> I person love the fact we're calling him John. <laughs> <laughs> But, but the guy, obviously, the guy who's run over, he's out of breath um, because he's just run. But John Nettles, when he's talking to him, is also out of breath. It's like you don't, you you know why he's the other guy's out of breath, John, don't you? It's because he's just run, but you haven't. He hasn't been leaning against a van, has he? Like you have. <laughs> so I don't know why you're out of breath. Yeah. Wow. Um. So yeah, was a triple threat. Triple Threat, and I watched that on Prime, and uh, I I quite enjoyed it. I yeah, I thought yeah. it was really good, and I kind of hope that they make a lot. I mean, I'll watch Scott Adkins in any film because most mm. of his films are pretty solid. But um, yeah, it was just nice just to see like a, it was almost like an Expendables for you know may, maybe not such a high tier. I liked it. Just going back to the thing you were saying about expectations of wall to wall action, I suppose. I think maybe with stuff like The Raid and more recently John Wick, there can be an expectation of those being the kind of pinnacle of action movies because of the fact, the sheer quantity of action in them, because they are unusual in their relentlessness. But I don't think that's necessarily what makes an action movie an action movie by any means, because I just think really... I mean, yes, you want a few good set pieces and you want a satisfying ending, please, Lone Wolf McQuaid. But you don't... It's not necessary for it to be just non-stop action. I mean, there can... As long as as long as long it's got a propulsion to it, you know? As, yeah. as long as it, it shifts. And as long as the main plot beats are informed by people taking action not necessarily a massive fight scene or a car chase, but people taking action, then I think that's fine. And, yeah, I wouldn't want that sort of filmmaking to go away. There's also a sequence in this film where um, uh, someone gets the corner of a room and they get shot. They're sort of like sort of half sitting up against the wall and they just get shot with, I think it's like a combat shotgun, and you know you said in The Last Days of American Crime, he gets shot in the chest with a combat shotgun and he basically just like wipes it off and carries on fighting. Oh, yeah. yeah. That doesn't happen in this film. They disintegrate. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a husk. I actually rewound it. It's really nice effects. I rewound it a couple of times and thought, she is not getting up from that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was quite cool. Oh, right. Um, so it, what would actually happen happened. Okay. Good. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? So yeah, okay. I've got yeah. one and a half left. So yeah, it's, it's up to you. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've got about maybe three left. Um, so Ten to Midnight is next. This is on Netflix, and Ten to Midnight is, as you say, a Charles Bronson film. I watched this actually not because of him, but because I wanted a bit of Wilfred Brimley, and oh, nice. uh, who's recently died. R.I.P. Yeah. Yes, and. And I've watched The Thing too recently, so obviously, naturally, I'll go to 10 to Midnight. Um, now, this is directed by J. Lee Thompson. And he made, he's, he was making thrillers for a long time. I mean, he made some pretty solid ones in the 50s and 60s, like Alex and the Guns of Navarone and Cape Fear, the original Cape Fear. Then in the 80s, he was nabbed by Cannon um, to make Twaddle like Death Wish for The Crackdown. So... Um, which we discussed on this program previously. <laughs> I will note, by the way, I did make a note of the fact that one of Cape Fear's key themes is about 
the dangers of violent justice. So it's interesting the direction he's now taken, Jaylee Thompson. Anyway, so this is so this is called Ten to Midnight, and it's uh, it was made in nineteen eighty three, and it's basically a police thriller with slasher elements. I suppose that's quite deliberate because everyone likes a cop film, but also you think about nineteen eighty three. I mean, that would have been really in the kind of slasher explosion of the early eighties. So like a bit of a. Am I right in saying it's kind of a, a bit of a sort of rip off of of um, what's that film with Clint Eastwood as well, Dirty Harry? Um, possibly, although it's been so, too long since I watched Dirty Harry to see the. I, now you mention it, yes, I can imagine. Yes, there is, there are elements of it. Um, now, Charles Bronson, he plays a detective um, on the trail of a guy who. Basically, he kills women who reject his sexual advances, and they do tend to. He's the killer is like this. He's like a very angry incel, basically. Um, yeah. um, Played by anyone we know? No, although he did go on to play, I think, a different killer in a different Charles Bronson film in the eighties as well, which is weird. Um, now, naturally, when the killer finds out that Bronson, who's obviously investigating him, when he finds out that Bronson has a daughter, he targets her. Mm. So the guy himself is, is quite unique. He always attacks. He's always naked when he attacks the women. And so you get these kind of amusing scenes where he's confronting these women and there's there's like a strategic tree branch covering his dignity, which is quite funny. Um, Yeah. um, It's, it's pretty grotty really. Um, like in terms of especially when it turns to the the kind of uh point of view shots you get the real voyeur shots of him ogling women undressing and stuff like that but there are some well-staged kind of tension scenes in it um i i got the sense that there's a suggestion that the killer is a repressed gay man because he's he will always go up to these women and make sexual advances but he's he's not a rapist and it's and i did notice there was um when his house is investigated there was male porn in the toilet so there's like this almost unspoken subtext to this whole thing um oh wilford brimley plays the stetson wearing police chief naturally not too much of a stretch then no not really um charles bronson's a bit of a tedious dad-like guy constantly admonishing people for like tiny misdemeanors like smoking weed and stuff or and or complaining how law and order has been eroded naturally um Obviously. yeah um there's there's a little bit of the in the killer there's a little hint of the kind of american psycho in him because he's very well groomed very preening got this sense of self-maintenance i think the guy's name is gene davis and he's um oh the oh, film that- cutthroat island no, it's Gina Davis. Oh. It's a woman. Um, he, yeah, Messenger of Death was the other film that he was in. Um, and I think that was with Bronson. I think that was also directed by um, J. Lee Thompson as well. So there you go. Um, yeah, so what? what's good about this film? And it is quite good. Not great, but quite good. I, I like the fact that they strongly suspect the guy, and but they just can't nail him. And I, I, I like the fact that that does create this kind of narrative tension. I like that Bronson's daughter is a fully fleshed out character and she's not just a plot device. 
That's good. And the focus really does shift in a very interesting direction halfway through. Um, and it becomes less of a straightforward cat and mouse thing. And it gets better because of that. Um, it definitely raises some moral questions, albeit quite basic ones. Um, and you get the usual kind of Bronson sentiments of like lack of justice and complaining how a mentally ill person spent six months in the nut house and was pronounced cured. And then he shot his parole officer. It's like, yeah, being a bit selective there, Charles. You know, <laughs> but okay, sure it does happen. Anyway, um, yeah, so it's actually, even though it's pretty grotty and dated in some ways, the music, wow, it's an amazing synth score. Oh, because yeah. it's not like, you know, proper like snare driven synth hadn't really got a foothold quite yet so you still got that kind of 70s experimental kind of sound to it like really weird bubbling like really weird bubbling almost organic sounds it's so good terry uh, riley is a, yes is baba o'reilly um yeah so yeah it's actually a pretty taut little thriller and it's got genuinely like tense final sequence which is really quite well staged and, and of course i'm assuming from what you said this is Grotty and it's eighties, the eighties. It's New yeah. York, isn't it? And that, um, which you love. I'm pretty sure that Faye really likes this film. I'm, and we've watched it a couple of times. I might have to watch it tonight. Yeah, it's worth it. I mean, it's just, it's just good. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's very much of its time. But you, you put it in its time, and it's, it's perfectly enjoyable. I can't imagine how it could possibly be made these days. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's a good slasher slasher slash cop thriller <laughs> Back uh, poster. 40 years later <laughs> um i watched a film called the wolf hour again on now tv starring naomi watts is this something you are familiar with i am familiar with her but not this not particular really. work well, it just looked interesting because it's basically just here smoking fags in new york in the late 70s um in, in a, she's got agoraphobia for reasons that aren't entirely clear at the start of the film mm-hmm. um, <laughs> maybe aren't entirely clear at the end and she's um, sort of in this in this New York apartment during the heat wave the son, with the son of Sam killers right? Uh, the son of Sam murders sorry so the film is she's ostracised herself from her family and she's living in a really grotty dingy apartment and she's kind of running out of money and it turns out sort of part way through the film you realise that she's an author that's written like one sort of smash book, but she's expected to write another and the, and the money for that is dwindling. And it's kind of a, you, the, the camera very rarely leaves the apartment. It's all, it's all very much, she is the main focus and she's in every single scene and it's just people coming and going to the apartment for different reasons and her just trying to, you know, get, get the second book done. And, and I really enjoyed like the sweatiness of it and the, and mm. the chain, the chain smoking, obviously, and just the sort of the clothing is amazing. Like just ye- yellow crop tops and massive flares signed me up. But um, I, I've kind of realised, you know, when you watch a film and after about 45, 50 minutes, you think this is quite, this is ambling. This is really ambling. Look, this is this is Steven Spielberg's ambling entertainment <laughs> along, and and I, I was enjoying it. And, and then when it came to sort of when it sort of um, finished i thought i just i wish that i wish that i enjoyed the plot and what it was trying to say more than i 
as much as I enjoyed just watching Naomi Watts, not in a, like a sexual way, but just she's just very nervous in it and she's kind of broken and she's mm. puts it, she comes across really well and how she's just a completely fractured person for reasons that kind of become more and more apparent as the film goes on. Um, the she back, does seem uh, fractured very well, doesn't she? Yeah. Naomi Watts. Or you think about um, like 21 grams, like she's just such a mess in that. And then Mulholland Drive. Film, yeah. You know, she does do it very well. She can be broken very well. Um, and she's thin enough to actually snap as well in this film because she's definitely n- living nowhere near a Greg's. <laughs> but it's yeah, I just wish that the like the payoff was a bit more interesting than it, it was. A she she is good in it, but the film in and of itself isn't particularly good. Right. It seems to have. I, I get the sense that it's it seems to think it's got these big ideas, but they're not really explored. Okay. So, so yeah, but it's it's definitely worth the watch as just like a little character study sort of thing because she she is really good in it. Is the realization of the period convincing? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's hard to say because you never really leave the apartment. So. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I, so, it's it's worth the goosey. Okay, but just the first forty-five minutes before I get bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. until you start well, the moment you start to expect something turn it off <laughs> that's a resounding recommendation then <laughs> so what's um, that's on now tv and it's called what again the wolf hour and um, I'll, I'll really quickly because i'll leave the rest up to you then i've got in fabric um to talk oh, yeah. about r- really briefly because i like i said i didn't watch the whole thing so what happened was i was um i was working and face and i'm just going to go in the bedroom check a film on and i thought she said i'm going to watch fabric and i just assumed it was some period drama about a dressmaker or something i was like oh, okay <laughs> and then um, she sort of came in about 20 minutes later and I, I didn't know anything about this film i didn't know peter strickland you know from barbarian sound studio directed it and i really like barbarian sound studio yeah. and she came in about 20 minutes later and said this film's really weird it's really weird like it's th- very odd things happening and then after about fifty, about 45, 50 minutes, I finished work and went in and watched it with her, and I laughed. It's one of those. It's so funny. There's there's such odd sequences in that film about this. Just it's effectively this kind of red wraparound satin dress mm. that that when when people kind of come into contact with it, it kind of takes over their lives. And and it, not not only does it make them kind of do dark things or have these dark thoughts, but people interact with them very strangely, and it's <laughs> it's very surreal. And there was. There's so many. There's constant sequences about a guy who fixes washing machines, and he's just really boring. Just he's just got this unmanageable hair, just quite a plain face, and he's like just boring NHS glasses. And he's constantly just around people's houses, like staring into the empty, broken drum of a washing machine, and just in in a really monotone voice, just lifting off, listing off like possible issues. Oh, it was just it was. Oh yeah, the uh, the the adjudicator's probably come off the wing nut, which is attached to the fan belt, and the and and then people are behind him like rolling their eyes in this weird ecstasy that they get when he talks. I was loving it, and there was a sequ- There's a sequence in it where, where I which I will probably I will probably just watch on YouTube, and I'm not going to give too much away, but it's a sequence where one of his friends um comes up to him and he's he's like in work, and his mate says you're in real trouble. And he's like, what? And they said, they know. Someone saw you. I, I didn't do anything. No, they got pictures, mate. They saw you did. They saw you fixing your own washing machine. 
and I and it's just this brilliant, like just complete blank slate comedy. I was laughing. So I yeah, I, I don't know enough to say like I did watch the last forty five minutes, but I fully intend to watch the whole film because I think it'll be one of the funniest films of the year. I <laughs> I was not expecting that to be a complete thigh slapper. But, uh, here we are. <laughs> Because, I mean, Barbarian Sound Studio was quite funny at times, but only in its kind of darkness. And the, the thing the thing I found funny about Barbarian Sound Studio was just the fact that he was, it, it's obviously Toby Jones, and he's in he's such a kind of small, meek man, and he's in such a bad situation, such an alien situation. Threatening it's, situation, it's, yeah. yeah. And I just, I loved, it was con- constantly funny just having that set up there. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely going to have to watch this. Where is it available um, it was on No TV again. That was okay. the, that's that was the one of the first films we watched on No TV. So definitely worth it. Uh, definitely worth a watch. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll quickly whiz through uh, K9 then, <laughs> which is on Netflix. Uh, made in 1989. The James Belushi. James Belushi is investigating a drug trafficking operation in downtown LA. Um, he needs a sniffer dog, obviously. So he enlists Jerry Lee, as the dog is known. It's kind of a human canine buddy cop thing, directed by the same person who did Teen Wolf and Beethoven's Second. So just to give you some idea of the quality. Now, the, I'm going to say a name. Chris Pratt, right? You know Whoa, who he okay. is? Yeah. Okay. So, right. Chris Pratt. I remember when maybe it's, it must have been around Guardians or possibly around Jurassic World. I saw a lot of talk about how he of comparisons between Chris Pratt and Harrison Ford, right? Younger Harrison Ford, which were completely wrong because they completely misunderstood what Harrison Ford's persona was. But anyway, so that was wrong. But I realized watching James Belushi in this movie, Chris Pratt, it's Chris Pratt. He could, <laughs> if they were going to do a remake, it would be Chris Pratt in this film. He's cocky, he's wisecracking, overconfident, brave to the point of stupidity, as in just wading into situations and stuff. Chubby, thinning yeah. hair, not funny. <laughs> Very yeah. occasionally amusing, but mostly charmless. So, oh, and Ed O'Neill and Pruitt Taylor Vince also rock up in this as well. Good, good, good. Uh, yes. Um, so, I mean, the actual plot is pretty standard. Lawrence Gordon produced action thriller stuff. Um, you know, Belushi, Belushi's character, he single-handedly trawls bars and warehouses and alleys, questioning suspects in an idiosyncratic way, should we say, <laughs> working his way to the top of the trafficking tree. Um, like, like many action comedies of, of that period, it is a little bit too brutal to appeal to younger kids. and But at the same time, um it's not funny for adults so <laughs> inevitably the dog is the real star of the show um but then turner and hooch was released the same year and it's a better film and it's got the yes. more charming star so really your mileage entirely depends on your capacity for james belushi and i have almost zero capacity for james belushi so unless it's in red heat i know i know what you're gonna Obviously, say yeah naturally but yeah, it's literally just him the whole way through. And it's like, it reminded me of that Bordello of Blood. Who was the guy in that? Dennis Miller. Dennis, yeah. He's a bit like him. 
where he's just needlessly sarcastic and unpleasant to people a lot of the time. And it's like, I I don't know whether you're meant to want to be like him because I really don't want to be like him. Uh, yeah. Because sometimes, you, you know, part of the comedy is watching someone act in a way that you kind of wish you could sometimes, you know, just letting loose and saying what you really want to say. But he never says what I really want to say. He's just just a bit of an oaf. So, um, two two quick things. One of them is that K9000 was a film that terrified me as a child because um, I, I where my bedroom used to be, my parents were watching K9, uh, sorry, K9 downstairs. And I was, all I could hear was like a dog barking ferociously and like flashes of blue light off the TV. And it just terrified me as like a toddler. And the second thing is that there's a pseudo sequel called K9000 starring Catherine Oxenberg and Chris Mulkey. It was a made for TV movie that you should probably watch as well. Should I? No. Yes, you should. Well, I suppose it hasn't got James Belushi in it, so therefore... We, we review films, Rupert. We don't always review good films. That's true. That is true. And how apt as we go on to Ghost Rider <laughs> on Prime. So this was made, this was made in 2007, just before Marvel started crafting their universe. Uh, I'm guessing the reason it hasn't really been resurrected or mentioned in Avengers is because of rights. Because I think this was one of the Columbia Pictures Marvel films, uh, as in Columbia Pictures, which is part of Sony, and they did the Spider-Man ones. So anyway, there was a sequel apparently to Ghost Rider, Spirit of yeah. Vengeance. Yes, I was going to say, was there a sequel? Was Nicolas Cage in that as well? I think so, and it was directed by Neville Dean and Taylor of Crank fame. Oh, by the way, K9000 was written by Stephen E. D'Souza, I must quite say. Of course it was. Um, so, yeah. Um, okay, so Johnny Blaze and his dad, they work at this travelling circus. His dad's uh, like a stunt bike rider. Anyway... He's got cancer, his dad, and so this young Johnny Blaze makes a deal with the devil, played by Peter Fonda, good, to cure his dad's cancer. Um, and he does, but then instantly kills him in a bike stunt. So Yeah, uh, he does that, doesn't he, the devil? Yeah, he's, he's a cheeky one, isn't he? You probably don't want to be doing deals with him. When he made the deal and Johnny Blaze was like, oh, cheers for that, did the devil go... <laughs> Pretty much did actually. I think he does start cackling as he's like <laughs> hunched over his body. Um, so anyway, it, it cut to modern day, and Johnny is um, Nicholas Cage with dyed hair, kind of trying to make <sighs> him look younger than he is. Uh, he's a bike stuntman. So meanwhile, um, in modern day, uh, the devil—he's not actually the, the devil. It's Mephistopheles, but. Let's just call him the devil. The devil's son, played by Wes Bentley, is prowling around, sucking out people's souls. He's looking for some ancient contract, which means that he can have a all the humans. phone with 800 <laughs> minutes a month. <laughs> Only $5. Uh, I think he wants all the human souls, but then, you know, who wouldn't? So, um, so basically, the father is the father is hiring Ghost Rider, um, Nicolas Cage, to um take out his son basically so yeah oh that's the other thing yeah johnny blaze is now a flaming skulled superhero type thing fair enough 
Um, it's directed by Mark Stephen Johnson, best known for 2003's Daredevil. Oh! Uh, it's sort of all right to look at in that bland, artless Marvel way, you know. Oh, all okay. Uh, I'm not familiar with the comics, the comics, but I'm. I gather that Johnny Blaze is a, is being toned down in the film because he drinks hard and smokes a lot, apparently in the comic books. But he does not hear. Um, he uh, Johnny he has more idiosyncrasies than Cobra. No, he what? eats seriously. He eats like jelly beans. I think they're jelly beans from a cocktail glass, right? He constantly listens to the Carpenters. He drinks coffee directly from the pot. He's just he's just a mad lad, really. He's off the leash. Um, well, we'll get to that anyway about him not being off the leash anyway. Um, I could, but given that I, I've got no real background with Ghost Rider, I didn't, I couldn't get a handle on what the character is really about because he seems to like revel in his power when he is on fire, sort of thing. And he, and he rescues a woman from a mugger, and then, but then he wakes up as if he's hungover. I'm not sure if he's fully conscious, and he seems to be regretful. So it's like, I, I'm not sure of the how conscious he is of what he's doing. It didn't seem clear to me. Um, and and you know Johnny Blaze himself, the 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 guy when he's not a flaming skull, he is so kind of chilled in that kind of Nick Cage way, so and morose really because he's still mourning his father. He doesn't seem like any kind of a thrill seeker at all, despite his job, uh, and yet he becomes this excitable maniac when he's Ghost Rider. So, and the film does nothing to explore those two opposing sides of his personality. So, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Uh, it's obviously quite CGI heavy. Um, bad CGI or it's just about passable I would say I think the, the problem isn't so much it, they do their best rendering fire which we know is quite difficult to do in CGI but I think the part of the problem is is that the image of the flaming skull is inescapably silly in itself so as soon as you take those images off the page and put them into a, this kind of grounded world it will always look a bit ridiculous so yeah, um, not not the best. But anyway, you get the usual story beats. Uh, you get the kind of dead parents, him struggling with new powers, um, stumbling. There has, a, there has to be a love interest. Yes, there is a love interest. Um, yeah, so he's he's and it's played by Eva Mendes, and he there's of course a scene where he's stumbling trying to tell her what the truth. There's all the unbelieving cops. There's the scenes of him gathering the different tools, the clothes, the vehicle. Um, and is there, is there a child to use him as like a mentor? or No. Oh, okay. Although he does have a mentor himself in the form of Sam Elliott. So that was a nice <gasps> touch. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I like that. Because yeah. so, Sam Elliott plays like this original Ghost Rider from, who's like from the Western time, the, the Wild West times, if you see what I mean. Good. Yeah. Um, so that, that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, the real problem is that the film is very tame and bloodless. And I don't just mean in terms of like the violence. I mean, it's clearly toned down in that, those terms, but also it's just very conventional in its plot. And the, the violence is mild. It's conventional in its plot. Um, you get these kind of the occasional bit of second unit footage of some Gothic architecture, but it's not really built into, into the film. Or his themes you got, and then you got the main character. Obviously, 
the main character is fairly bland and and Nicolas Cage is shall we say caged in this film he's not he's not off the leash in any way sort of thing I suppose the only time he is off the leash is when he's the CGI creation and it's like well how much of that is really him sort of thing so that was very disappointing um and like even supposedly comical scenes really do fall flat Wes Bentley and Peter Fonda are very boring in their delivery. Eva Mendes is terrible. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two good supporting actors in the form of Sam Elliott, because he's always good, and Donald Logue, um, the guy who played Harvey Bullock in the Gotham TV series. He's good as well, and he's quite amusing. But the rest of it, I just, I got the sense, I read up about it afterwards, and I realised that it spent a lot of time in development hell, this film. It was originally it was originally written in the year 2000, and this is 2007. So it was obviously... And I, I, I think what ha- inevitably happens in those situations is that the script will be passed, passed around from writer to writer, from studio to studio, mm. and then inevitably it's going to become filmmaking by committee and so it's like and that's what it looks like on the screen it's just like you've got this pretty awesome looking character and you just put them in the most conventional narrative you can imagine very disappointing when was the sequel made it was only like it must have been a year or two later no 2012 a little bit later oh my god okay i don't think it did very well yeah i'm almost intrigued are you gonna watch the sequel I, I, the fact that it's directed by the crank people suggests that it might be a little bit crazier. Uh, I can't imagine that they do something as generic as the original. I don't know. I might do. Yeah, I'd like to see, you know, Nick Cage just showing a bit more personality, really. Because it, it must have done well enough for it to sort of warrant a sequel. And even, maybe, yeah, hopefully it's a bit more outgoing. Have you ever seen Spawn? No. From like 1997, please watch that film, please. Um, Is that the, got CGI in it? Oh yeah, I'm pretty oh. sure. It, I can't remember. I think it might be. Is it my, hang on, let me just check. Who plays the main? Hang on, it's 1997. It's got John Leguizamo in it. Obviously. Um, so two moments, two shakes of a lamb's tail. Spawn movie. 1997. I'm pretty sure it was. was it yeah, Michael J. White plays Spawn, John Leguizamo, Martin Sheen's in it. Um, Probably the playing C- the president. The CG in that film is astonishing. And when yeah. when he goes to hell, and I yeah. think again, it's like Mephistopheles or someone in that, and like gives him his Spawn powers. The CG is so bad. I remember thinking, this is like watching a PlayStation One cutscene, <laughs> like when it's kind of in low resolution and buffering on YouTube. It was baffling. So please watch it. Please. Yeah, I watch need it. to see that. That sounds Again, amazing. The Considering this was fine. ten years later, and some bits of this look pretty ropey. Oh yeah, Spawn from '97. Give it a goosey. Wow. Um, okay, so I've only got one left, and oh, that okay. is American Psycho Two. <laughs> this stars. Did even star a woman? It just does. It stars Mila Kunis. Right. Okay. So, right, the first thing to say is that this was never intended as uh, an American Psycho sequel. So, bear that in mind. Did they tell that to the person that titled the film? 
the <laughs> I'm not sure that the person who wrote the film ever titled this film, and it certainly wouldn't have been American Psycho Tour. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Myla Kunis has spoken about that, the fact that she wasn't aware at any point that this was going to be a um, an American Psycho sequel. So you do get these weird moments where things are happening and Patrick Bateman's name will just be thrown into the mix. Um, usually you won't be able to see the person's lips moving. So you're thinking, mm, this has been added in post, isn't it? Because <laughs> really it's not that. There's no real connection. So Myla Kunis, so you see Myla Kunis's character as a little girl, a 12-year-old, and she's with her babysitter. And her babysitter is um, attacked by Patrick Bateman. And this little girl, uh, as as the babysitter's being attacked, the little girl goes and kills Patrick Bateman. Okay, so that's that's tied, tied up that loose end. Um, so, yeah. So it's kind of got the same high ambition theme as you know like in america's cycle it's all about investment bankers wasn't it but this is so myla kunis is a college um a, a college student and so her whole thing is climbing over the kind of contenders in her class to become the pre- professor's teaching assistant ultimately she wants to become an fbi agent um so um yeah, it, and William Shatner plays a person, naturally. Oh, I was going to say boyfriend then. Oh, Jesus. No, he is really <laughs> creepy in it, though. Um, yeah, he's quite good. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's got this... It's, it's a very odd film. I don't think it's totally terrible, but it's got some really fundamental problems. Uh, not least the music. It's got this incessant, jaunty music kind of like desperate housewives or something where it's like it's meant to complement the scene but it it it's completely juxtap it a complete juxtaposition with what's actually happening and i get what they're going for to have like this jaunty music while really harsh things happen and people get killed and stuff because inevitably like what's going to happen is that she wants to you know get what she wants and she's going to kill other students and that on the along the way so i think um but the problem is it's just deployed in a really in a really stupid thoughtless way so you'll have so okay i get it so while someone's being killed there might be some ironic music but then there'll also be the same music over a scene where you know there's like police investigation going on and it's like this could be quite a tense dramatic scene but it's just like someone just oh let's just play the same stupid jaunty plucked orchestral music over the top so Yes. Anyway, um, I it sounds like it feels like it was another decision that was made after it was decided this was going to be American Psycho sequel, because it's they were probably thinking, oh, well, you know, American Psycho that was quite ironic. So you know, why don't we have a bit of that? We add a bit of that afterwards. You can't you can't retroactively add irony to something. But anyway, retroactive quirk. My third album. Myla Kunis is is good and she's well cast because she's obviously got like these massive very innocent looking eyes but she's sociopathic at the same time so um I think it's going for this kind of arch off kilter heathers type vibe but it's really not capturing it because the script isn't there it it doesn't have any of the American Psycho's dark satire but then I 
perhaps it wasn't really going for that anyway because it was never intended to be that so um i i do think that if it hadn't been lumbered with the american psycho name then it may have been better received because it's not completely terrible it's okay the script isn't that much cop but it is fairly unpredictable and it is amusingly amoral at times and the performances are pretty strong especially Milo Kunis and William Shatner so it's not a complete write-off but you almost have to you know just ignore the moniker fair enough so um yeah because when, when did this come out not long after the original, 2002. So Marla Kunis must have been young then. Yeah, she was genuinely like probably 18 or 19, 19. I guess. Okay. Yeah, well, that's cool then. Billy, Billy Shat is in it, so that's almost enough reason to watch it just on the basis alone. Mm. But, I would, uh, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't say it's a good film exactly, but not as bad as you would imagine it would be. Yeah, like especially when they've tied tacked on the yeah. American Psycho name. I have to read it, but did they have like another title? Because she must have signed on when it was called something. Oh else. yeah, yeah. And, and there is there's a scene. I only spotted one moment where someone actually says Patrick Bateman, and they're like, and we can see their face. So I actually rewound it to see if they were actually. It was William Shatner. And I, was, I was looking at his lips to see did you actually say Patrick Bateman, or if they just post dubbed that in, and I couldn't I couldn't tell. But they, they must have done that a few times throughout the film. Or just done like reshoots, or you know, yeah, uh, no, that's true. Added it in the post dub. Mm. So it's mm. that time when we discuss the film of the week. Um, mm-hmm. I think I'm looking at mine as you were just rounding off your American Psycho 2 review. Then I was just looking at mine. I enjoyed the call, and it's a tough one because. I enjoyed Cold Skin. I enjoyed looking at looking at it, but I spent too much of it frowning at what was happening. The Fanatic is, whilst it's fun, it's not it's not film of the week material. You know, it, it was just a, a nice surprise. Yeah. Triple Threat Triple Threat was pretty solid. I, I'm I'm going to say I'm not going to count In Fabric because I didn't watch it all, but I think that would be the film of the week. But I'm going to say The Core because that was like. I'm enjoying these 90-minute thrillers that are like mm. pretty pretty fast-paced and stick to their premise at the yeah. moment. So I'm going to say The Call with Halle Berry from 2013, I think. So that's my film of the week. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I've got some pretty strong ones this week as well. I, yeah, you got Frankenstein. <laughs> it is not that. <laughs> uh, I mean, The Departed is very good. But I don't think it needs any more recommendations away because I think it's pretty well regarded anyway. And it's, uh, you know, um, and it's not a surprise that that was a very good film because of the talent behind it. Um, so I'm going to say Dirty Dancing because I'd never seen it before. And I, you know, I've heard the songs. I've seen, you know, bits of it. And I was expecting the worst, but I was pleasantly surprised. I thought it was a really nice mid-budget just drama film um which worked really well and i can understand why people worship it um i wouldn't go that far but yeah and it goes to show like how much of a loss patrick swayze was you know it was it's true because i mean you're obviously not the target audience for that film but i don't know if you realize that at any point (laughs) when you were listing like his his um performances that capture sound of um, machismo and manhood in and you yeah. know point break roadhouse you i didn't realize how different they were 
And I thought, yeah, mm. actually, he, you realize he, I get the impression that even um, films like I mentioned earlier, like Tiger Warsaw and stuff, I can imagine he's not never really bad in things, but the films are just bad around him sometimes. Yes, yes. Yeah, he was, I think he was probably quite limited in his, in his range, but he did what he did very, very well. And so I think putting him, because he's got this innate masculinity and you put him in a different type of movie and it brings something different to the role, to the film. uh, And he did have scar quality. So yeah, so Dirty Dancing is my choice. Dirty Dancing and The Call, good. Right then. I shall uh, love you and leave you to watch. We've got quite a few films on the go. I've got one with um, Stephen McHattie and Elijah Wood to watch. Uh, I've got. I might watch In Fabric fully, but then I've got Us. I started last night, but it was it was clearly too late to start that film, so I'm going to watch that tonight. And I swapped another one with John Leguizamo and Ty Sheridan earlier on that looked interesting, so I might watch that as well. Any for you that are rolling up that you've got. um, any any love film DVDs come through the post? <laughs> uh, I've got um, Out of Sight. Just started watching that. So I finished that off tonight. Um, the Steven Soderbergh film. Uh, nothing else at the moment. Uh, my wife has asked me to recommend certain films because she's obviously off on maternity leave now. So... Um, but specifically, films made after 9-11, but set in New York. Oh, okay. The reason not before is because it's too sad. So, so, <laughs> But she's, like, really into New York at the moment. So, yeah. Answers on a postcard, like, modern films set in New York, which are really cool. Well, like, really brutal slashes, or...? Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking that, you know. Because, <laughs> actually, when I think of, like, New York films, I do... I think of like Woody Allen's Manhattan and or like, if, you know, like um, like some 70s films, um, like cop thrillers and stuff. And I do, like modern films that depict New York. I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. Hmm, I'll have a bit of a think. Yeah, that, that's quite a funky. That's a very niche thing to want to watch. I like that. Yeah. It's, good. it's narrowed it's, it down. Um, I'm actually looking for films set between Thursday, April the 5th, mm. and then the following Tuesday in mm. 1952 in mm. Astrid Gunlice. So if anyone can okay. think of any films, or Blind Chachai, I'll watch films based on this. If anyone can answers on a postcard, sticky back plastic, send those into us. Yeah, right. well, I mean, obviously we've got to wrap this up, so I won't reel off all my <laughs> suggestions right now, but... <laughs> Just send me a text. <laughs> Um, send me a text on my Philips mobile they'll have to wait for it to scroll across in <laughs> a single line but don't worry the battery I haven't charged it for three weeks but there's still two bars left yeah. um, right then I'll, I'll love you and I'll leave you